and welcome to this week's episode of the Tapping Up podcast. Myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. It is episode 47 this time, Ian. Correct. Uh, were you sure? You want was to there, me was there ever any doubt? I don't know if there was ever any doubt in that, was definitely there? Definitely not. Um, by the time this is going out, it'll be Friday. It seemed like one of the longest weeks of my life, I will be honest. It has dragged like mad. Um, England not doing so well, having started technically yesterday, although it is today for us still. So Thursday's play very, very well. Clawed it back after falling away a little bit. And now the shit again. Uh, lost oh, well, what, what of England? Oh, I remember paying attention. What of England ended the day on batting wise? Uh, they ended it on 68 for three, I think, off the top of my head. With that so, wonderful middle order and tail that we have, that will probably be, what, 150 all out? I wouldn't be surprised. But my dad's got day five tickets. He's not going to that, is he? It's going to be over within four. Poor old Mr. Smith, uh, yeah, yeah, getting a refund. He ain't go, he definitely ain't going on Monday. Or if it is, it will be up to like five. What happens? Here's a question then for you. What happens if one of the teams, it'll be, I suppose it'd be England batting, are like 10 runs away? I know sometimes they would carry on the later night, but let's say it's 20, what, 30 runs. Light comes into play. You go, it's on for half an hour. You still presumably don't get a refund? Yeah, that's you do. It. So there's a minimum overs that you have to be able to watch. I think it's 20 or 15. Oh, that's not so bad then, because I was expecting that to be good. And you pay your full ticket, you look forward to it, you go there, you're there for like 20 minutes, half a beer in, and then bang, it's done. You'd be like, right, out in Headley on a sesh. I'm going to say, you'd go out on Headley regardless, wouldn't you? You'd just be hoping to God that it'd be less than those overs so you get your money back. Yeah, that well, time. that's what you want, isn't it? England win, less less overs so you get your money back. Take that money, stick it into a little kitty for a... Uh, Daytime sesh for uh, for your dad and his mates uh, in, in the uh, in uh, in Headley. Well, while we're talking about other sports, I know that you, you probably wanted to mention this right at the end, but uh, you've got a bit of a a random sports story to tell us. I have only because I saw it and it, I found it hilarious, and I thought it was unavoidable to at least mention on the podcast. So this is Boris Becker, uh, the original. Two pump chump squirt. Obviously, if you remember that story of when he made that woman pregnant, knocked her up in a, is it like a broom cupboard? And literally this woman came out and said like, yeah, he came in about three seconds. Um, But he had been going through some bankruptcy uh, issues uh, back in Germany. And how this even happens, I don't know. It's one of those stories. I read it. But he apparently to avoid debt collectors taking his prize racing horses he hid them in his bedroom. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if he thinks that like debt collectors aren't going to go looking around your house looking for goods. But two, if you leave a horse in your bedroom for like, let's let's call it half an hour before they find it. One, how do you get it up there? It's got so many questions. Two, it's going to be covered in horse shit. Imagine the fucking state of your bedroom if you leave two fucking horses in there. So they're probably biting shit. Like I, I just read it and I was like, what on earth are you doing, Boris? Have you fucking lost your mind? I love the idea that the collectors will go upstairs and they're like, have you got anything in here? No, 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 nothing Yay! in there. <laughs> What's, what, what was that? I, I, I was just making a random noise. Open what was the that? Door and... it's, it's my homosexual horse. Just or even up. better, you go in, the two horses are fucking over his bed, so there's shit everywhere, horse jizz all over his, house, his room, and then they take him away anyway. And it's like, yeah, nice one. Like, that was a clever idea, Boris. The campest horse I think I've ever heard in my life, that impression. Do it again. Nay. 
Incredible. Um, we have UFC 290 this weekend. Um, a biggest, uh, or the, the biggest card I think we've spoken about for a long while. Yes, yeah, decent for a change rather than talking about, I mean, again, the UFC have hit a bit of a run where I think they've had, is it three or four weeks in a row where they've had an event and it's been every week we've been a little bit downbeat, haven't we? Like, oh God, it's another shit card of just one fight holding it up. Um, this is a really decent card all the way down. I mean, you could talk, we won't because we'll be here forever, but you can easily talk about like the vast majority of the fights on the main cards. And then you've even got like a, a seasoned KO veteran in Robbie Lawler uh, on the prelims, which mm-hmm. I find there's a little bit of a, um, uh, what's the word? Not a disgrace because that's the wrong word, but a bit disrespectful for a man of his standing and what he's done in the sport. They could have at least put him on the bottom of the main card, but he's the final fight on the prelims. So that tells you what a, a stacked card it is for a change. I'm going to say rather than if we look at it, we try to be positive for once. Obviously, we, we never are. We're normally negative. But if we look at the positive side of it, is it more of a suggestion of how stacked the main card is that fit on the main card rather than him being treated poorly and then sort of cast aside? Yeah, I'm not saying, again, he's not treated poorly. That's a you know probably a slight over-exaggeration on my part. But for someone of his level and what he's done for the sport, a genuine pioneer at what he did. I mean, again, not being funny, it's not like anyone would moan if they put an extra fight on the main card. So instead of five fights, it went to six just to put him on there. But equally, I also, I suppose if you're looking at it from a business point of view, what I believe often happens is obviously the prelims are quite often free. So they will round off the prelims. And of course, if you've got someone decent, that turns out to be a right fucking scrap, as Robbie Lawler fights usually are. That could be that extra incentive for someone then to say, fuck it. Do you know what I'm in for the night? bang, pay pay, by for pay-per-view for the main card. So I I can kind of see a little bit of business sense in the way that they've done it. But for me, someone of of his stature and what he's done for the sport deserves to be on the main card. Start from the top then, because this is a fight that I'm quite looking forward to just because, I mean, he's, I'd argue, my favourite fighter. I don't know who I'm arguing with. It's my opinion, obviously. But my my favourite fighter on the... Like uh, like to argue with yourself, do you? (laughs) It's my favourite fighter. No, he's not. Um, yeah, I, I think Volk is by far my favourite fighter on the roster at the moment. He is always fun to watch. He is in a class above everyone else uh, for me. And still think this is his biggest test at this uh, weight class. Obviously, there was the, the fight with Islam, but it's a bit of an outlier. Rodriguez, the interim champ who became the interim champ because of the fact that Volk went up with uh, Islam and tried to take that title. I'd like to see your or hear your opinion on this because I think that you're going to go one way and I think it's going to be a way that I agree with you, but I've also been arguing with myself a little bit back and forth on this. I mean, it's. I think it's a lot of a tougher fight than people give Volk credit for. I think you're right that, I mean, you, Volk does seem to be the only fighter that gives you a semi. You know, I've just mentioned his name <laughs> and I can see you get a fucking semi in your pants. Whereas you know, I won the, that the... Um, UFC tournament. You know, the one that I won the Virgin voucher for because they asked me who my favourite fighter and I went Volkanovski. And they went, here's your voucher that we're going to make never sure give you, you can't use. <laughs> um, and it would take four months to come and never will. But um I think it will be a lot tougher than than people think. I think Rodriguez has got quite a a difficult style matchup for him because he's quite flashy with his striking. He's quite rangy. 
Uh, Volk definitely does his best work um, up close in the clinch, getting people down, grounding and pounding them, grinding them out with his with his endurance. So I, I, I'm definitely going for a Volk, Volk victory, but um, I could definitely see it going either the distance or at least into the latter rounds. I think people are probably sleeping on Rodriguez a little bit, if I'm honest, but he can be very hit and miss. You know, sometimes in his last fight when he won the interim title, he looked like a world beater and he looked like he was he was ready to take on Volk. Uh, he's had other matches that I forget the couple of people that beat him relatively easily with a particularly there was one, I'm sure he lost a, a one round KO um, that he's looked bad. So I think a, a lot of it in some ways, you always know what you're getting with Volk. It's pretty pretty fucking consistent as, as fighters go. You know he's going to bring it. Um, a lot will depend on maybe what Rodriguez turns up. I mean, he, and this is Rodriguez, is uniquely gifted, shall we say, in a way that he does things that some other fighters wouldn't necessarily be able to comprehend. He has had, obviously, his wins over um, Jung and... Caceres, I think, off the top of my head. It was a crazy spinning last second back fist that he did against Korean Zombie. I think it was yeah, as well. And that, that one? and that as well. I do, yeah. Uh, Korean Zombie, again, is another one that I, I always enjoy watching all of his fights. But those two in particular, and the reasons that I mentioned those, is they were fast-paced five-rounders. And the point that I'm trying to make on that is that Rodriguez probably has one of the ge- best gas tanks in the spot. He is... Very, very good, in my opinion, in terms of just constantly going, constantly going, constantly going. And then against Volk, it'll be interesting to see how he puts that forward. But if he's pressing him and he's in his face constantly and he doesn't allow Volk to open, you know, have his own way constantly, then you might get to the point where Volkanovsky is being slowed down. He doesn't really know how to respond. He's overwhelmed. And then you might see a bit of an upset there. I'm still back in Volk, and I think that's the safe bet, quite clearly, given he always finds a way to win. Again, Islam's the outlier. But as you said, this isn't an easy fight whatsoever. A lot of people will put this down as as we did with um, Hill versus... Can't think off the top of my head. Yeah, and we thought that that was an easy walkthrough for Glover. I think this might end up in quite a big shock. I uh... The only thing, a point I'd argue with you is I think, I don't disagree with what you say about Rodriguez, but one of Volk's absolute biggest assets is his gas tank. He That motherfucker is non-stop like a Duracell bunny. So I, 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 I can't, I don't foresee any problems in terms of him slowing down or he's obviously won't be the smaller man like he was against uh, Islam, where Islam was able to kind of maybe tire him out and wear him out with a bit more weight on him. Um, and um, the, I suppose the, the, key, the key issue for the fight for me is if Volk can get his hands on Rodriguez. Rodriguez can keep it at range. Volk is quite a small featherweight, uh, stature-wise and reach uh, you know, very, very solid jab. But if he can't get close enough to use that jab or get him and hold him down and ground and pound, it could be a long night for him. It could go to a decision. But I've got to be honest, I, as much as I like Rodriguez's flashy stand-up skills, Volk, that man has got a chin on him as well. So I, 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 
if Rodriguez is going to win, I would see it by decision. I can't see him personally knocking Volk out. But the one of the things you do sadly see with these people, I mean, Volk is obviously, as you say, Islam aside, he's never lost at featherweight. Pretty sure if you take the Islam fight out, he's something like 12 or 13 and 0 in the UFC. All of these fantastic champions eventually hit a point where they they there's that passing of the torch and they meet that younger, hungrier person. And each year and each fight that goes by with Volk, that becomes more of a, a potential that it could happen. So I, I don't see it happening myself yet, but I don't think he's got many more years left at the level that he's been fighting at over the last couple of years anyway. Give me a prediction then. I know you said Volk, but just confirm it. Volk, fourth round KO. Ooh, I'll go Volk decision. Just to go, I like to be different. And I'm not seeing as well on the question of Volk, I've got a little question for you, or the, the discussion of Volk. I've got a little question for you because I think we will definitely disagree with this one. But, um, and given that you know, even the mention of his name, uh, gives you a little semi in your pants, where do you stick? Why Volk? is it little? <laughs> we know why. Uh, <laughs> why does uh, why do, where, where do you slot Volk in the pound for pound rankings? Where's he sit for you? Uh, ooh. He'll put him top. I, I feel like the the whole oh. thing with his yeah, I, I would. I think the Islam. I'm fi- I've got to back him, aren't I? I, I can't say anything Le- different. Leeds are your favourite team, but you're not going to say they're the best team in the world, are you? That's crazy. Like yeah. your, your logic there is mental. What do you mean? <laughs> I think he is. Yeah. Interesting. Would you not put him top? Three. Three. Who would you for put me? top? Don Jones. Bama. I know he's only had one fight back, and I know he's been uh, out. Nah, nah. John, John Jones is top by a mile, and you've got to. I know we've talked about this before, so I don't want to get go over old ground. Islam beat Volk. For me, if you're in the rankings, you have the person you beat has to be above you. So for me, it's John Jones, Islam, Volk. I did forget about John Jones, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> so I'll, I'll take that back. But Volk is definitely second. I'm not having Islam above Volk. I don't care if he beat him at all. Um, if he drops down to featherweight and beats him, we'll have that discussion again. But I mean, that's never going to happen. If, exactly. if there will that's be a rematch, it will go. Be, it'll be back at uh, Islam's weight. Um, uh, 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 what's that lightweight? But um, yeah, no, no. For me, I, I have him as three. But so you'd have him as two. Yeah, I've just had a look at the um, actual UFC pound for pound ranking. I pretty much agree with the top five. Have you seen the top five? No, I have not. Far away. Yeah. John Jones, Volk is second, Islam is third, Leon Edwards is fourth, and Adesanya is fifth. I might switch Adesanya and Edwards personally, but definitely. I mean, I mean, as much as again, he's our hometown boy. We watched his last fight. Um, I, I've got to be honest. Edwards should probably be far lower than that for me. Edwards would be lucky to be hitting probably six or seven in my own rankings if I had to think of other fighters. But um, good for him, and interesting to note that the UFC. I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud, agrees with you rather than me with Volk's ranking. Shock. I mean, I put him as first, didn't I? Because I'd completely forgot that one of the greatest, of the of greatest fighters of all time. It's like, it's like talking about football, who's the best? Oh, shit, that Messi guy. I forgot about Shearer. him. Forgot about that um, Messi and Pele. Didn't put them in, into the equation. Move on to the next two fights then, because my embarrassment is palpable there. Uh, Moreno and Pantoji. Glad you said it. That's how I, I, I was going to Google it before we started. About Pantoji is how I was looking at it as it is. Um, 
you've obviously this so this is for the the um flyweight title you've got moreno who is obviously the the champ and has won again been involved with only because i keep loving the word that you introduced me to the ufc's only ever quadrilogy against uh figgy coming out 2-1-1 um he's in two wins one for figgy one draw uh and toji is the number two ranked in after figgy so the next obvious Patoja. um got got stoppers both there it's Patoja. i knew it right. went wrong Patoja. so uh he's <laughs> the number two contender so um yeah feels like one of those fights that it's good i'm much i don't i get a bit like we talked about of jamal hill i'm not a big fan of when you're getting someone like ranked seventh getting a title shot so the champion versus number two in the rankings given the champion is beat Number one, twice, uh, the last time pretty convincingly. Um, I'm all for that. It's the obvious fight to make. Um, I think it'll be a close one again. Um, Moreno is one tough dude, as we've seen in all the fights with Figgy. Incredible chin, uh, very, very durable, and um, not dissimilar in some ways to, to Volk Rodriguez. Um, Hitoji is a flashy striker, so... Um, he will be looking to utilize some, you know, spinning back kicks and some flashy moves on the feet and keep it standing. Whereas Moreno is incredibly well-rounded and is quite happy wherever the fight might go. So um, probably, again, I'm not so sure it will be an easy win, but I certainly see Moreno coming out as champ. When his last fight, Moreno, uh, Cara France um, won it. I believe. Was it not the quadrilogy it... against Figgy? Or it? Were that with Carafans before that? I'd have to look it up, but um, oh I'm sure he's coming off the, the last uh, fight that he had was, uh, the, as I say, the quadrilogy. Um, but. Um, and knowledge is probably. I mean, you can hear you frantically typing in the background. So I'm trying to look it up for you, seeing. Yeah, it you... is. I've had a look. Yeah, it yeah. was Figgy. It, it Figgy is. Was it is. Because he fought him. Um, Cara France in between him, didn't he? Between, yeah, anyway. So, back to the point. So, so, so was, Cara... I, was I right there? So, is that one all uh, on the podcast then? Don't know, don't know what you're talking about. Wait till what I've got prepared for you later on. So, keep getting cheeky. Um, against Cara France, and in that win, which was fairly comfortable by all accounts, he tried to exhibit a more aggressive style. And in all honesty, it didn't really work up until uh, the fight where the point where he blew it open for a finish. I think if he tries that here against Pantoja, he's going to essentially expose himself to a significant amount of risk that he doesn't need to do. I think if he just goes patient throughout, um, lets Pantoja hang around, I think he can take this quite easy. I, I, this will be one of those that I will be backing with a far more comfortable stake than I would do with Vulcan Rodriguez if Moreno takes that patient approach. Because I think if we get anywhere near five rounds, then I think it'll be quite easy decision for Moreno. But Pantoja is probably his most dangerous opponent other than Figgy. So the only I would not disagree with you. Only thing, and again I'll be honest, I haven't got this to hand, but Pantoji has he has he Pantoja. fought Patoja, has he fought in any five-round fights yet? Obviously, Moreno is a champ coming off the number of five-rounders against Figgy. So if it went into those championship rounds and the deep waters, 
can he hang with Moreno from the fitness point of view? Then that would be, I suppose, the only question I've got. And uh, they aren't the brutal answer is I don't know if he's fought five rounds before. But um, well, that, that's my exact point. He hasn't. He hasn't fought five rounds before. So that's what I'm saying. If he's more patient in his build up, he's obviously far more accustomed to these five round fights. He's been the champion for. Um, you know, he's, he's been in the five round fights and he's been in the championship stages for a number of times now. So I think as long as he stays patient, it doesn't do anything silly. I've got Moreno versus, uh, by decision. Uh, I wouldn't disagree with you, to be honest with you. Like I, said, I definitely see Moreno um, winning. Um, given how close the fights were with Figgy, I'd probably go a decision as well. I think, as you say, he's, it's less likely to see a knockout, sadly, with the smaller guys. You've obviously got less power, generally speaking. So, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with you on that one. But um, next fight, to me, is probably the, obviously, apart from the uh, Volt Rodriguez, fight of the night uh, contender and um, arguably the most interesting, I would say, fight on the card. It definitely has the biggest implications on it, and this is Whitaker and Duplessis. Um, I, I think, for me, this is one that seems, again, academic, and I think that I can only see one winner on this. Obviously, Whitaker has already fought Adesanya twice. Um, he's lost twice. Third shot seems to be in reach if he wins this, and he is, for me the best middleweight in the world outside of Adesanya. Um, I still feel that Adesanya beats him again, but that would be a very interesting trilogy to have. I think if you look at Duplissis, his two signature wins today are Darren Till and Derek Brunson, probably. But in both of those, he, in all honesty, just sort of amalgamated a mess. And both fighters in that, both opposing fighters had a number of successes and if he does anything like that Whitaker is going to absolutely take his head off I think he's gone no, go I was just gonna say he's, he's no joke though Duplessis I, I think he's very very good jiu-jitsu I can't remember what promotion the UF signed him uh UFC signed him from but he was the middleweight champ of wherever they signed him from um I think he's the only South African fighter in the UFC and an interesting subplot is the kind of, uh, you've obviously probably seen the back and forth between him and Izzy, which seems a bit premature from Duplessis, but talking about how I'm going to bring the fight, I'm going to bring the title back to Africa. Izzy, you're a fake African, because obviously, again, maybe for people that don't know, um, Izzy was born in Nigeria and is, you know, Nigerian by descent, if you want to describe it that way, but is home to uh, his, his adopted country and where he fights out of is New Zealand. And there'd been a little bit of sort of digging, if you like, from Duplessis saying, like, you're a fake African. I'm going to be the one that brings the middleweight title back, really, to um, Africa. And that seemed to pretty much get under Izzy's skin. So I've got to be honest, I, if I had to guess, I would be guessing that Izzy would be rooting for Duplessis so that he gets a chance to fuck him up. Duplessis, um, just going back to your question, he was the champion in KSW. I won't even attempt to pronounce the the actual name for KSW. I think it's a it's it's the a Polish, Polish promotion. Yeah, Polish, Polish, promotion. The Polish UFC. Basically. He then went to the Extreme Fighting Championship um, and I think he won the middleweight championship there as well uh, and that's where UFC took him from but 
Yeah, I, I just think Duplessis is a bit wild for me. I think Whitaker, again, similar to what we're saying about Reyna, if he takes his time, he will probably just take him apart. And it's not a safe fight, I agree. I think that there could be an upset in the same way that there could be an upset between Volk and Rod- Rodriguez. But for me, I think I'm just back Whitaker versus decision. I'd be back in all the favourites, very, very boringly, and all by decision. Yeah, and I mean, again, Whitaker, obviously, if he wins, he probably does get the chance to set up the trilogy with, with Izzy. He has lost the twice, but the second, first one was, I believe, a KO. Second one was a very close decision. So it's not by any means a particularly hard sell, even though he's 2-0 down uh, already. And that would be my guess that I think probably the winner of this, generally, given... Um, uh, Poetang has moved up to light heavyweight and, and fighting on the next numbered card on 291. I would probably say this is a de facto title eliminator for Izzy's next opponent. Tough 31. I am already bored speaking about this. In all honesty, it just seems like rinse and repeat. Uh, I'm going to spoil it immediately. Chandler's 6 0 up. And every time I seem to watch this, I'm not interested in the backstory. I'm not interested in the subplots anymore. I wanted to see the fight. I wanted to see if there's any change. There isn't. There was a bit of drama in the ring, a bit of handbags, and, and that's about it. One thing that I have noticed from obviously watching, I mean, it's been a few years, to be fair, since I was a, a big fan of Tough. I mean, I watched probably the first eight or nine religiously uh, every week when they came out. Um, and... What you used to see a lot more of, which whether they've clamped down on or whether they've just tried to get them to be more professional, is um, you you got to see a lot more shit going on in the house. So I used to describe it as imagine Big Brother and that you put in 10 professional fighters with a load of booze and what the mayhem that would happen. And the best bit of it all would used to be the, the antics that would go on in the house in between fights where people would be getting pissed up. They'd be scrapping out in the garden. They'd be fucking setting shit on fire. There's that infamous clip that me and you always talk about where the guy's like, hit me, gone, I've never been knocked out, and gets knocked out. Like There used to be a lot more of a kind of fun atmosphere. This one in particular, I've noticed, you seem to get a lot more um, background to each fighter. So you get a bit of a, a story about their family, don't you? And it shows you where they're from and you know so you've got McGregor's guy Lee Hammond is actually from the exact same place in Dublin as as, as McGregor called Crumlin and trains at uh, SBB with uh, with um with McGregor uh Kurt Hollerbach who's the veteran um you saw that he was I've got a few notes here from a small town and a house with 20 acres uh that he was a single dad with with three kids when he met his his now wife and he owns two gyms I mean, they never used to go into that level of background of the fighters and seeing them showing you with their kids. And I'm not quite sure of the angle of the UFC that who wants to see that. I'd much rather see, look, put these 10 guys in a house, give them a shitload of booze and see what happens. Because you know what's going to happen, which is they're going to run each other's mouths off and start scrapping. That's what I, I like. I, I'd prefer that. If I agree. It's, it's way better. Honestly, if you, if you, if you went back... And you watch some of the, the, you know, you found a few older toughs. Um, it's completely different to this. You, you'd really enjoy it because they say the bits between the fights is far more entertaining. All the shit and talk in the house and the damage they're doing and they're breaking doors and 
gainers come into the house and going fucking mental and people getting kicked out. You'd often get people that would get kicked out because of the shit they'd caused. It was far more interesting to watch because it was kind of like controlled mayhem. Whereas now it seems a lot more like a sort of genuine program where maybe they've tried to, I don't know, expand it beyond a hard hardcore MMA audience to a wider audience. I mean, I don't entirely know or understand the marketing, if I'm honest with you. But um, in, in terms of the fight, I mean, this one, you have sport it already and it is 6-0 Chandler, but fucking bullshit in terms of... That the guy uh, Lee Hammond, he was one minute thirty seconds away from winning when the he apps both rounds, superb ground control, and given that Kurt is a black belt at G, uh, B, uh, BJJ, and was saying earlier in it, his trainer got his black belt from one of the Gracies. So you're talking elite of the elite. Uh, Lee Hammond absolutely dominated him on the ground, completely controlled him in the first round, um, and and easily won that. And was well on his way to to winning, uh, and then out of nowhere, bit of a mistake from uh, from Lee. Uh, ironically, Lee had been trying for at least two or three guillotines earlier in the fight and survived. Uh, and then Kurt gets a guillotine himself and, and and taps him, and he was one minute thirty seconds away from from winning. But equally, you've got to take your hat off to to Kurt Hollabau in terms of his durability and his patience. Waited for his moment, took it, bang, done. Out of curiosity, why is it bullshit? Because when someone's been, when someone dominates someone for eight and a half minutes of 10 minutes and then they lose, it feels kind of bull. So it's the equivalent of if, you had to, if you're talking football terms, you get battered for 80 minutes, the other team go up, up the other end and score in like the 85th minute and win 1 0. It's one of those type of in it. It's that that it, that that you fit. Bullshit's probably the wrong word, but you'd if you were that Lee Lee Hammond, you'd feel aggrieved because all he had to do was stay with exactly what he was doing. He knows he made a mistake, and he he a hundred percent would have won that fight. Feels aggrieved. He can only be bad at himself. I think if he's dominated a fight, and I agree, he was clearly on top in both rounds. But you make a mistake in this game, lights out. No, I don't, don't disagree with you. Uh, I mean, the probably the most entertaining bit, clearly, of the uh, the whole program or episode was uh, the shit that went down at the end where McGregor got a bit mouthy with Chandler and it gets squares up. But the bit that I thought was interesting in terms of, I know you'll probably say, oh, it's McGregor, He's, it's all a bit showman, it's for show. Dana, mate. Dana looked genuinely concerned, did you not think, when he ran into that ring. Dana's like, holy shit they might be scrapping here because McGregor's taking his jacket off. And then the way Dana came in, Dana's face was not, this is some stage shit that I know is going to happen. Dana looked genuinely worried that shit was going to go down. I thought if it were live, I might tend to agree with you, but it's not. And the angles and everything to make it look far more dramatic, a bit of background music. It's all staged. I, I do not believe a single bit of it. And the more that I watch and the more that I hear in the news, I don't think this fight is even going to happen between. No, I, I, we've, uh, said, we've been saying this the last couple of weeks, but I just yeah. mean, I don't personally have Dana down as the world's greatest actor. He might be the best promoter in the world uh, at, at mixed martial arts and might be good at many other things. I don't think he's an outstanding actor. And to me, he looked genuinely like, fuck, I need to get in there. This shit could get out of hand to me. Um, so, and I've seen him at a lot of, UFC events where shit's going down afterwards and he's not looked that concerned. So 
I might be being naive, given your view of it, but I, I think he was genuinely worried shit might might spill over. Um, only other thing I've got for you as a little bit of a, a random one to throw in there. And um, we can run through these and you can have a few guesses. Uh, I mean, I think number one is incredibly obvious, but I've also uh, found a nice article I found on uh, on Sherdog, which together with MMA fighting are my two favorite MMA uh, news sources. But they did a top 10 fighters never to appear in the octagon. Um, would you like to hazard um, some guesses or would you like me just to run through them? Is that a hint and it's actually Edin Hazard who is number one? Uh, <laughs> no, it's not. These are all genuine fight. I mean, number one is surely obvious because he goes down in a lot of people's eyes as the greatest fighter of all time. So you, I'll be disappointed if you can't get number one straight off the bat. Go on. Fedor. Ah, uh, of course. So Fedor is number one. Um, and they tried plenty of times, to be honest. It never quite came together. And then when I think the chance of it actually happening, he was a bit of a fading force and he was in strike force and a few other promotions. But just to, to run through him, seeing as we mentioned it now, I feel like I've got to go through him. Number 10, you've got uh, Bilbao Fernandez, um, who was a very high-level jiu-jitsu uh, practitioner and fought in a number of other promotions, but mainly uh, one championship. He's tied at 10 with um, Megemi Fuji, Fuji, who was another Japanese fighter, uh, a pioneer in the early days uh, of, of Pride, uh, and never made it to the UFC. Uh, number nine, you have Douglas Lima, who you may well have heard of, has been dominating for a while in Bellator. He's actually a three-time middleweight champion. And his brother, whose name I forget, something else, Lima, also did make it to the UFC, but wasn't particularly um, successful. But he, at, at his peak, was a pound-for-pound pound top 10, Douglas Lima. So it's a shame he never made it over. Uh, at number eight, we have Mamed uh, Kaladov. Funnily enough, you mentioned KSW earlier. This guy is uh, KSW's middleweight champion. And I think he's actually held both the middleweight and the light heavyweight championships in that promotion. Um, so he's pretty good, but never probably quite UFC standard. Number seven is Yaroslav Asmanasov, who is a very, very good uh, welterweight, uh, who at the moment he is Bellator's welterweight champion. And I'll be honest with you, he could easily take on some of the UFC welterweight champions. He is good enough to be in the UFC. And depending on his contract situation, would not surprise me to see him in there. But he is incredibly impressive and one of the best active fighters uh, on this list. Number six, we have um, Va Va uh, Vadim Nenkov, another one who is Bellator's light heavyweight champion at the moment. And I think comes in pretty high in the pound-for-pound -pound rankings at light heavyweight. I think some, organ um, some lists have him as high as three or four. So he, again, would be another one that would be interesting to see uh, in the UFC and is an active fighter. Number five, we have um, Igor Vuchelnik, um, who is an old school fighter from Pride. Uh, 
very, very impressive old guy to watch. Uh, again, if you get a moment for his highlights, he's worth a watch, but never quite made it uh, to the UFC. Uh, old school, long retired, I think. Um, you have at number four, Shin, uh, Shinji Aoki, who is an incredible grappler. Some of the best heel hooks you'll ever see. And again, has fought in a, a plethora of different uh, organizations, uh, mainly in the Japan, but also in Bellator and other uh, still active at the moment. But very, very good submission artist. One of the best, uh, probably one of the highest number of submissions, probably of any active fighter, I would guess. Number three, just to round it off, uh, I surprised me this one, uh, is Ricardo Arona. I've told you a number of times uh, about uh, Ricardo Arona and what a great fighter he was. The reason I remember mentioning to him, he's probably most sadly most well-known for being powerbomb KO'd by Rampage in Pride. And I'm sure I've showed you that video where he's trying to get submit a submission on Rampage and Rampage literally picks him up and just bombs him on his head and just sparks him out. Uh, but he, at the peak of his run in Pride, was an incredibly impressive fighter. Um, number two, just to finish us off, we have... Patricio Ferre, who is uh, Bellator's probably arguably greatest ever fighter in terms of, I think he's won um, uh, a crazy amount of, uh, of fights. He's got a 35 and 6 record, including three stints as the featherweight champion. And I think he even went up a division and won that as well. Um, so uh, nicknamed Pitbull, but he is a, um, he's also knocked out Michael Chandler. Uh, back in the days of Bellator, uh, amongst some other pretty impressive um, people. he um, And number one, we've also discussed is the uh, everybody's sort of legend that gets slept on of Fedor Emelianenko. That took, I think, about seven minutes to run through. And Six sure or seven our list- minutes. Our listeners were probably fully engaged and delighted to hear my in-depth discussion uh, of fighters that didn't make it to the UFC. If people are driving, listen to this. I'm 90% sure you might have just caused a few crashes, falling asleep at wheel. Uh, hardcore fans, mate. They'll be into that. I'm telling you. I need to get as well a snippet of you trying to pronounce every single one of those names and put it back to back because that would make a fantastic listen on its own. For a blooper reel, maybe at some point, maybe for the year when we hit, we hit our 52nd episode, we'll do a blooper reel. Thank Farker. Fucking hell. Leeds You've got a manager. Appointed a new manager. It's taken a while, but uh, Leeds United have finally appointed Daniel Farker. He was considered alongside Patrick Vieira, Scott Parker, Carlos Corbran, I think Brendan Rodgers, they took a little bit of a sniff at and potentially Graham Potter, but those two were way out of the options. Vieira pissed off to France. Scott Parker is jobless and Corbin remains at West Brom. I think that this was the best appointment that Leeds could have made at this point in time. Before I do a deep dive on it, I want to know your opinions on him. Um, Seemed to do a pretty impressive job at Norwich. Um, he always struck me as the type of manager that, a bit like we've talked about certain players, hit a certain glass ceiling. I think he's an excellent championship manager. I'm not quite so sure how well he fares 
with a better team than Norwich, admittedly, who didn't spend any money and give him a great deal of backing. So you do have to factor that in. But I'm not convinced he is a Premier League calibre manager, even if he was backed properly. But I think out of the uh, options that were available and realistic for you, I would say he's the best appointment. And I think to get you up, I would be very, very, very surprised if he doesn't get you up. How well he fares next the season after, if he does get you up, if he's backed, I, I'd love to be proved wrong, but um, I'm not quite sure he's Premiership calibre. I feel at this point in time, it's irrelevant. You could tell me that we're going to appoint someone who is the greatest Championship manager of all time, but who will fail 100 times out of 100 in the Premier League. I wouldn't care. If we get back to the Premier League, you can then consider what you do with him then. They've given him a four-year deal, so the suggestion... That was the interesting thing I was going to say to you, because that, that was what surprised me, was the four-year deal. If it was a, a one-year or a two-year sort of reflecting what I've said, that's it. That's interesting. Four years shows they're clearly backing him. That's exactly what I'm going to say. So the four-year deal shows to me that they have confidence in him. And in the interview that he gave, one of the, the quotes or one of the, the mentions that have been in every newspaper article, has been in The Athletic, has been in the Yorkshire Evening Post, etc., etc., is that he would back himself as a Premier League manager if he is backed correctly. Now, what you, you pointed out already, he wasn't backed correctly by Norwich. Norwich, a lot of people suggested at the time and would probably continue to suggest that they were happy being a yo-yo club, happy going up, getting the money, going back down, getting the money, going back up, and so on and so on. And then eventually, when they went down with Dean Smith, he wasn't able to bring them back because Dean Smith is a horrendous manager. And I would never rate him. I'm glad for Leicester's sake that they did get rid of him. They didn't pursue any contract with him for this season. Um, you've mentioned that he has a bit of a, a strange career. He was at Munch and Gladbach quite recently. So he was the sixth coach in the last eight years for Gladbach, following uh, Favre, I think it was, his 2011-2015 tenure that brought Champions League football to um, Borussia Park the first time. Since then, as I say, they've just constantly chopped and changed. They finished 10th under Farker last season. They were seven points adrift of European qualification and they exited the, I always forget the name of the cup, is it the DFB? B Cup Copal Dopal Copal. I, I won't even try to pronounce it. Um, he did have some highlights at Gladbach, albeit a few and far between. They beat Bayern Munich 3 2 in this year. They beat Dortmund 4 2 in November of last year. But by the end of the season, I think in the last 13 games, they only won three of the last 13. So it's not a fantastic record and it just seemed to peter out at the end. Um, his Norwich teams, as you rightfully pointed out, decimated the championship. They're extremely fit. They pressed extremely well. And one of the, the funny things I've seen is that they were banned from playing horizontal passes. So I think he made a point of that to them, that they weren't allowed to play laterally. They always had to push forward or push it back in the aim to try and progress up the pitch. Leeds were apparently seduced by the conviction that he had and his ability to present his vision. So he apparently sat down with Leeds, his hierarchy, and said, look, this is my plan A. This is how I'll play it. If you don't like it, don't appoint me. You know, I'm not going to change myself. I'm not going to change my tactics. If it's not the one for you, you've got other options and other candidates. I like that. 
Uh, it's, it's very Bielsa-esque, and a lot of Leeds fans will like that comparison in terms of, I'll make plan A better instead of having a plan B. His reputation was for possession-based football and continues to be for possession-based football, although I've read some comments from Gladbach fans that they didn't like his lack of tactical flexibility. Um, a lot of negativity that came around from his time at Gladbach was that when it wasn't working, it appeared very safe. One of the things that I saw the comparison of was Yaps Am's Reading from a number of years ago. Their possession was incredibly high, but they did very little with it. I don't agree with that comparison. I think Farker is far more attacking. And as I say, he's far more heavy metal football is the uh, the old adage in, in terms of Klopp's um, brand. But I think he's a good appointment. I think he, he is very, very good in terms of a championship level. And at this point in time, that's all Leeds need. We need to get back to the Premier League. We don't need to succeed in the Premier League in this season because we're not there. So there's no point in looking too far ahead. My favourite thing about Farker and his appointment is the youth aspect. So you look at his Norwich team. Let's just have a, a quick run by about the, the youth players that came through and now are succeeding. So you've got Ben Godfrey at Everton, um, Todd Cantwell, I mean, he's at Rangers now, isn't he? but he's, he's doing well at Rangers. Jamal Lewis at Newcastle. James Madison and Oliver Skip, who are at Tottenham. Angus Gunn, who plays for Scotland. Max Ahrens, who is currently still at Norwich, but is likely to be moved on. And then you've got Harrison Reed as well, who I think is at Fulham at this point in time. So they, they've all done well and they've all done separate things and they all speak very highly of him. Do you know anything about Leeds' current youth crop? Now, you, you, obviously, you'll know Nonto and you'll know Somerville and... Uh, Ruta, who is the greatest January transfer signing of all time. Um, any of the others? I do know a little bit uh, about Leeds's li- crop. Can I just say that I think you just spoke for about seven minutes and probably put anyone driving to sleep um, with that little segment there. But um, difference yeah. being, I didn't pronounce anyone's name wrong. Um, no, no, I mean you've obviously got some impressive young uh, academy graduates. You've got uh, Archie Gray, if, if that's yep. right. I always forget. Is it Eddie Gray's grandson? Is that who it is? Is that right? I believe so. It's either is he's definitely related. Definitely related. You've got obviously uh, Cresswell, who I think out on loan at Millwall and had an outstanding season at the back. And obviously losing Cock and a few other players that you have, will you you would think at that level he might come straight in. Um, and then there is one more player that I'm aware. Obviously, you've got um, Geldard to come back Geldard, as well. Yeah. Where, not exactly um, a goal machine if I, if I, from, from his uh, time at Sunderland on the second half of the season. But I understand he's, from, well, from you, he's not really an out-and-out number nine. He's maybe a little bit of a deep line 10. So maybe that reflects more of his, I think, I did, did I see it's three goals in 17 games or something like that? So not particularly um, prolific, but I understand he's quite highly rated. So I know you've got a few... Gems, you could argue, in there for him to, to integrate in. Um, the key for me, really, is is how many of your current squad that you can keep a hold of. You know, how many of those decent players that can you get for an extra year? Can you keep Somerville? Can you keep Nonto? Who both of them would absolutely tear up the championship. You know, that 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 that's the big, biggest factor for me is how many of the current team you keep. Or is it a fire sale? No, I agree. I think... 
Nonton Somerville would be fantastic in the the championship, as we would expect. Personally, I think one, if not both of them, will move on this summer. You've got other youth players. You've got Darko Giabi, who is, has been bought from City last season. People are expecting him to have a good season. Um, Greenwood, not Mason, of course. Um, but he it went off the boil a little bit. He's been played in midfield by recent manager. I'm not entirely sure why. It's Marsh started that whole thing. He is a striker out and out from Arsenal. He's a, also a free kick specialist. Arch Gray, you've mentioned. Uh, we've got Perkins, a young striker. Lewis Bate coming back from a loan at Oxford, who a lot of people rate. Jack Jenkins, who is 21 now, so needs to see some sort of movement. Matteo Joseph up front. You've got Mullen. You've got Sean McGurk. You've got Leo Helder. The crop of which Farker can potentially mould and make into, hopefully, top championship players, if not more, is all ready for him. And you're right in that if you can keep your Tyler Adams, I know that Rodrigo is one that they're hopeful of keeping if he doesn't go elsewhere, which would be I mean, best striker in, 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 in yeah. the best striker by Mar. I mean, the, the only problem I think you've got with running through, the, I, I didn't quite realise the number of youth prospects you've got. You can't have a full team of 11 with that many youth in. You, no. know, you might be able to get away with four, you might be able to get away with five, but you've got to have, particularly at the Championship, some experienced players. Now, you're going to probably have Cooper in there. You're probably going to have Aileen. Uh, so there's, uh, there's certain players there in terms of some 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 experience to help those younger guys out. But you can't have a team of 11 prospects. You know, that's we've just been, I Agreed. Crazy. It's more, I want to see who Farker picks and chooses of those. I completely agree. Not all of those are going to make it. Some of those are going to be either loaned out, you know, left in the under-21s, developing elsewhere, or just sent uh, sold elsewhere as well. But there are certain ones. Archie Gray is always the one that I've been excited for for the last few years. Um, Gelhart, as you say, is very highly rated. They're being linked to a number of very, very strong championship players as well, Leeds at the moment. So Cal Darlow, if they got him from Newcastle, would be a very solid goalkeeper signing. Ryan Manning, who was at, at Swansea last season, had a fantastic season at, at left-back, is on a free, so that would seem fairly logical. I know Charlie Taylor, who used to obviously be at Leeds, has been linked. Uh, he's out of favour at Burnley at the moment. Nat Phillips, your favourite centre-back of all time, is being linked to us. I think that, again, would be a solid... <laughs> 10 mil. You, you can, I'll, drive, I'll drive it. I'll go and pick him up and drive him down to fucking Ellen Road myself for 10 mil. The two that excite me most that we're being linked with are Hamer at um, Coventry. Coventry. Yeah, fantastic centre mid. I, I'd be surprised if he came to us, although, you know, why not? If he's going to stay in the championship and you can convince him, he's only got one year left in his deal. And then Joel Piro, who is the striker at Swansea again, who... I think that would be the one that would excite me more than anything. I mean, Hamer, you could see some some legs in that rumour only because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm not given my current form of this episode of pronunciation, I'm not even going to try and uh, pronounce Victor, the Swedish striker of Coventry, uh, I believe <laughs> is very close to signing for Sporting Lisbon. Yeah. So you could argue that Hamer and him were by far and away the two standout players and made that team click and get where they've got they, they've got and you might wonder if Hamer sees if if he's off if he's uh you know the the man that's supplying the goals uh is going is the team going to start to fall apart so you, I could definitely see some some legs that he thinks right Leeds are a, a better option than Coventry to go up I'll, I'll move there so that one and I think that'd be a great signing as well because he looked really good last season 
Yeah, I, I'm trying to think how many. Um, I think he got like nine goals and 10 assists. So he would be very good. And he's around 26, if not actually 26. So he's got the experience and it's not just a, you know another prospects, which Leeds have been quite guilty of going after in recent years. Uh, move on from Leeds because I can spend all day talking about them and I'm getting a little bit excited for next season now. Uh, Dominic Slobberslay. Did I get great that right? Slobber Sly. Slobberslay. Um, um, uh, great <laughs> signing. Um, I, I've got a note here from you because this is your notes. Great signing. Um, I have a few questions for you, but I'm going to let you elaborate first. So he was, uh, we paid his release clause, which was 70 million euros. Um, we triggered it on the last day of, that it was actually available, which was the last day of June. So we pay, offered him that amount then. And then it took a few days before he was confirmed medical, get him over the line. Um, done a lot of research myself on him. I've been, been reading uh, a lot, a lot, lot about him because he was another one. I think I've said before, I feel like I keep saying this like a broken record, still not entirely sure of his, his best position. He seems to me that he could do a fantastic job at eight. We've given him the number eight as well. Um, and, and and for me, next season, um, I'm going to go with, if we carry on with our current uh, formation and the way we play, um, I would have a midfield three of Fabinho, McAllister and Slobberzai. So you've been doing some reading up on him. And I would expect that you'd be quite knowledgeable about him now, correct? To some degree. I've got a little bit of a challenge for you. So I've got a few questions. All you have to do is answer them. They're all simple questions. First one being, what is his position? (laughs) He has been played in a number of positions, as I understand it, for uh, Leipzig. They've played him out on the left. Uh, They've played him in a 10 and they've played him in an 8. So he can play in a number of positions. He's obviously got a bit of variety. Uh, he's a bigger, from, from watching some YouTube videos on him and some highlights and goals and assists, he's a bigger chap than I thought he was. I'll be honest, I thought he was quite slight in terms of a playmaker, but he's actually quite, a, looks like a relatively physical presence, you know, well over six foot, really pretty big built. I saw he had some very impressive stats in the Bundesliga for ball carries as well as ball recoveries and dribbles. So he can obviously uh, mix it up. And um, I would have him as the, across the three, the more attacking of the three. Fab obviously doing the job that Fab does and McAllister being, you know, your bit of everything in your deep line playmaker. But that's where he plays. That's where he fits in uh, for me at Liverpool. He's not part of the front three. So just to confirm, what were the three positions that you gave me then? Left wing, centre mid. And attacking mid. Attacking mid. Okay, so your uh, research on him. Played 10% of his games as a left winger last season. Didn't play a single game as an attacking uh, midfielder. Played 7% of his games in centre mid. Played 77% of his games as a right winger. So... It'd be interesting to see. And just on that as well, just while we're we're talking about it, just because I just want to be in this sort of mood today. Um, If we're playing him as a right winger, we we don't know where he's going to play. And I agree. I think he is going to play. He's definitely not going to play right wing. That's Mo's position. He's not getting ahead of Mo. If he played in right wing, you've got to then compare him to the players that you've got at that position. 
obviously Mohamed Salah is currently the right winger. And of the forwards that you've got, only Salah had a higher combined total of goals and assists in the league last season than Sobersly. Obviously, he unfortunately played more than everyone else that you had uh, played in your team. So if you look at the the time played and you factor that in, Sobersly managed a goal or assist every 175 minutes, which is a lower hit rate than Salah, which is 106 minutes. Darwin Nunez, 142 minutes. Diego Jota, 103 minutes. Gordy Gakpo, 163 minutes. And Luis Diaz, 166 minutes. So he can't be playing on the wing because if he does, so you've tried, basically you tried, you tried to make me look a mug by saying he played all his games as right wing. He did play and then all his games. Proved right that stat wise, he's worse than our whole front five put together, who played less games. But but he did play on the right wing. So again, next question: What's his nationality? Hungarian, and he's the captain at 22. Okay, that was my next question. Who is Hungary's captain? When did he debut for Hungary? I believe he was 17 because he came from an Austrian team, if I'm not mistaken, called Leffering before going to Salzburg and then on to Leipzig. It's not a question, though. So what? when was his debut? Give me a year. So 17, If I think he's 22, so we're going back five years. So I'm going to say 2018. Ooh, 2019. It was the 21st of March in a Euro 2020 qualifier against Slovakia. You haven't read up on him, have you, here? You haven't studied him. Last question, then. Last question. What's his dad's name? <laughs> it's relatively simple questions. Dominic. <laughs> I mean, at least gone Dominic Senior. His dad's name is Zolt who I believe, now that you said that, was also a professional footballer, was he not? He was indeed. Um, you clearly don't know enough about him. Um, we'll move on swiftly because, you know, this this knowledge is, is just pouring. You've let him down. You've let his dad's alt down. And you've let Liverpool down. Firmino has left you. He has yeah. gone to the Saudis. Disapp- I mean, obviously, we, we just for our listeners as well, we have um, a double tap coming up for you uh, this Sunday, I think, where we're going to do a dedicated deep dive on the Saudi Arabia situation, what's going on there, the players that have moved. So we'll we'll save a lot of that for that. Really disappointing for me. I, I really hoped he was going to go to uh, a better team. He's joined uh, Al Ali, who I believe is also the same team that Edouard Mendy signed for from Chelsea, the goalkeeper. Um, the one little thing that did surprise me, which I've got to be honest, and I mean, of course, he'll, he'll go down in Liverpool history as part of that front three, uh, which I think at the time it was later than, you know, the MSN in terms of Barca front three. But I think it would be hard to argue during their prime, they were not the best front three in the world when you had Mane, Salah and Firmino at the peak. The, th- the surprising stat that I did find uh, about him is that he played 362 games for Liverpool, which is actually the 40th most in history of Liverpool players, which I found I didn't realise he played quite that many. 111 goals and 72 assists in those 362 appearances. So um, he's obviously gone for the money. He's not gone for the competitive nature. He'll be making himself a shitload of money and having an easy life, but... Good luck to him, given everything that he gave us. I can't begrudge him anything. Solid servant for Liverpool and 
I'll be honest, these types of moves to the Saudis at that age make that money. Still, still, personally, again, I think he's 30 or 31. Still had a couple more years. He could have done a couple of years at a bigger, better team. I think, again, like a... Uh, and now I, I wouldn't have wanted him to go to somewhere like Barca because he would have been a bit who were linked with him a lot. And Real, he would have been a very clear for Barca back up to Lewandowski, for example. He deserved to go somewhere where he would have been starting. I personally suspected he may end up back in Germany. Obviously, that's we bought him from Hoffenheim. So I had a suspicion he might have ended up back in, in Germany, maybe for a couple of years before he then bounced off to make the Saudi money. But um Money has talked and uh, he's joined uh, the Al uh, Ali. Ruben Loftus-Cheek has gone to AC Milan. I think this is a very good move for him personally. I feel like he's one of these. He's not quite on Deli Ali's level. In fact, he's nowhere near Deli Ali's level. But he had such a high potential and it's just never been reached. It, it just seems like he's been used as a bit part player at Chelsea for a number of years. This might be the might be a Tamori esque move, funnily enough. Absolutely, I mean it's quite a good comparison with Delhi Ali. I mean he, he never hit the heights that Ali did, and Ali, Ali obviously dropped off. But he's been long for years. I mean he made his Chelsea debut at some ridiculous age, sixteen or seventeen. I think he's twenty six now. He seems to have been around forever. Um, and as you say, he's never really had the chance to get. I tell you who, who he would also you could use it as a, a slight comparison would be Curtis Jones. Curtis Jones, for us, never really got much of a chance last season. All of a sudden, was given 11, 12 games in a row towards the end of the season. And actually, for the first time ever, looked like he might be a, a decent player that had some some, some potential and calibre. So I, I get the feeling he's never had the chance to have that run of games together. He strikes me as a confidence player as well. So he needs to be playing to get the best out of him. And I would agree with you. I think it's a great move. And as you say, could well, he's got Tamori there in terms of another Englishman to strike that bond up with and have a, some familiarity. So um, I think it's a great move for him. I think AC, I can't remember what they paid for him. 16 million euros. Yeah, it won a lot. It won a lot. But very cheap in today's market uh, for what you get in his age. So I think that is a very good move. PSG have got a new manager. Luis Enrique, I think, again, it's a very good move for, for PSG. be interesting to see what he does with Mbappe and whether that that changes the whole scenario this summer. I mean, that's going to become the, the saga of the summer, isn't it? Because I saw it was only yesterday. I read quite scathing comments from the, the president coming out and saying there's absolutely no chance that he lets Mbappe leave next year for free, given they bought him for 180 million euros. Uh, Mbappe seems to have been pretty clear that he won't sign an extension to the contract which runs out next year, which basically means it all comes down to PSG have to sell him this year. And I can't see a middle ground personally where someone will pay what PSG rate him at at the moment. I mean, if you were talking pure monetary value, he is you know, 100, 150 million pound player easily, which is crazy in, in, you know, figures in this world. But given what he is and, you know, him and, and Haaland are the two best players for me in the world by a country mile, he, you know, you could argue he's worth that. I, I will be shocked to see what PSG would accept for him. But they've kind of put them back themselves into a bit of a corner by saying they won't let him go for a, on, on a free. So if you were someone rather predatory, like Real Madrid are, are well known for, 
you would be coming in for me and offering 60, you know, 60, 70, 80 million euros and saying, take it or leave it, or we'll sign him on a free next year. You're cool. Could you see him at Madrid this summer? Because I know... Have you seen this this um, story that came out today, by the way, about how PSG have apparently turned around to him and said, if you do go to Madrid, we're going to have to sell some of your teammates? Like, uh, not, what, not, again, maybe he's a nicer person than me, but I'd be like, why do I give a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's their lives. That's what, what guilt what, tripping what, to stay. Like, what, I, what's like, what, it's like one of the worst threats I've ever known. Like, um, that's like, us going to a normal job and saying, look, Ian, if you leave, that person in that other department that you don't really know, we're going to fire. Okay, do Bye. it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hadn't seen that. And it seems a very strange threat to come out with. Um, but I, 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 it feels like they're trying to do, as you say, uh, this is going to rumble on. Uh, I, I get the feeling this one will last all summer. There'll be some cat and mouse between... I mean, let's be fair, unless he would be the ultimate disgrace if he went to Saudi Arabia. They've got the money to pay crazy money for him. And in his prime, at his age, that would be disgusting. So I can't see that. If we're being honest, the only other two teams that you would really think could afford him would be Real or City. And you can't see City have got enough problems with their FSB. They would have to sell a load of players to even make some room for him. And I know there's rumours of them being getting some big money for silver to go potentially to Saudi Arabia and the rest of it. But it's literally, it's Real Madrid or bust for me. I don't really see another option, if I'm honest. Speaking of managers being appointed then, Ancelotti, uh, Brazil. We discussed this a few weeks back, confirmed. He'll be taking over in 2024. Amazing signing for them in the World Cup. I mean, inst- I'd love to have. I'd love to have known uh, if we'd if we'd been keeping an eye out and been doing our due diligence. The odds on Brazil winning the World Cup before his appointment and after his appointment, because I bet they plummeted. Because Don Carlo is the man, has to go down as one of the greatest managers ever, easily. And then you're putting him in charge of, you know, what most people would say is the most talented. It maybe not the best. Because of that, they they have a, 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 a they always have that clangor in them. Brazil and never quite seem to go all the way. But in terms of talent, anyway, you would say they've got to have the most talented squad in world football. Um, my favourite headline that I did see about this appointment was former Everton manager set to become Brazil head coach in twenty twenty four. Of all the accolades that he's won in his career, of all the amazing things he's done. Former Everton manager. Yeah, well, that's clickbait shit. That not five times or yeah, three times. Is, is he the only person to win the Champions League with three different clubs? Yeah. You know what I mean? All, out of all the things that you could describe him as, that's like the shittest thing you could choose. Um, so Former Everton. Man. Fucking disgusting journalist. Pieces of shit. <laughs> it's the Liverpool echo, so... <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Cunts. But... Um, Final one, or a couple of final ones uh, to do with Arsenal. Um, pretty shrewd signing, I thought, from Arsenal. Announced, I think, yesterday. So they've signed Yuri and Timber from Ajax. You know, we said there's going to be some back and forth. Apparently, that's been finalised at £38.5 million, which Bargain. I actually think in today's market is a bargain for his age. 
played for club and country over 200 games. He's only 22. I know I'd mentioned before I'd have a bit of concern about pairing him with Saliba just in terms of experience at their ages. Um, the one thing I did read, which I thought was quite interesting, and I personally, that's what I would do if I were Arsenal, is I read that they've actually signed him to play right back because obviously they've been playing Ben White there. They've got Tommy Asu there. They don't have a real specialist. And Ajax are well-renowned for bringing in younger players who are ultimately good, probably going to turn into centre-backs, but playing them at right-back. They've got a guy at the moment who's been playing, I think he's called Dench or Wrench, who is very similar to Timber, but very good ball player. Been playing at right-back. It um, gives them that ability to go up and down, get the ball, and then, you know, as they get a little bit older, bring them inside the centre-back. But I did read he'd been signed to play right-back, so that probably puts Ben White uh, on the bench. You think they'd spend fifty million on Ben White to spend forty million on Timbra just to get Ben White out of the team? I, I don't see that personally. So, what do you think he replaces Gabriel at centre back? Uh, he replaces one of the two. Yeah, definitely. I think he goes at centre back. We'll see. I mean, let's be fair. Ben White was the you know he's never a fucking fifty million pound player. That was the English uh, premium tax of double on on that. And it hasn't covered himself in any glory, particularly for me, playing right back for Arsenal either. So, um, I mean, he's a nice option to have. You, you could obviously rotate him in at right back, centre back. Arsenal are going to be in the Champions League. So they're going to have a lot of games. But um, I'll be honest with you, I see Timber starting at right back. And then um, Xhaka to Leverkusen. Yeah, apparently that's a breaking news one in terms of today. So signed for Leverkusen for about £21 million. Pretty good business again for Arsenal, given he was in the last year of his contract. And obviously they've signed Rice as his replacement, which is a, uh infinite upgrade uh, in terms of quality, if you ask me. I mean, Xhaka did have a pretty good season last year, um, but always been a liability, hadn't he? Yet red, yellow card liability. Never knew quite what you were going to get with him, but was pretty consistent last year. Probably his best year. Again, I'm not an Arsenal fan. So it's not like I can say I watch him consistently. But of those seven years, I'd probably argue maybe stats-wise last last year was his best year. But um, good signing for Leverkusen. Uh, and Leverkusen are one I've been keeping an eye on just because I'm interested to know whether or not they can keep Xavi Alonso. Because Xavi Alonso has been doing a fantastic job since they promoted him there. He's obviously was linked with a few other jobs, uh, Tottenham and a few other bigger jobs. Um, For me, I would like him to stay there and continue to grow as a manager. And personally, given the lack of options when Klopp's deal does come to an end, Xavi Alonso would be my shout for the next Liverpool manager. Two big fights announced for the rest of the year. We've got AJ White 2, woo, August 12th, and Usyk Dubois, uh, woo, August the 26th. Uh, the, the only interesting part about AJ White 2 is that Eddie Hearn has actually come out today and said that if AJ wins, he is set to fight Wilder in December in Saudi Arabia. So that's all but agreed. Underwhelming, I'd say. You can hear my voice. Don't, not really happy with either of those. Um, White, AJ, we've seen before. Not really that interested in that. I think Dubois, uh, Usyk is fair play to Dubois. All upside for him. No, no uh, you know, gets the chance to fight. Um, all right, he's not undisputed, but as good as undisputed, particularly given we know that Fury's dodging him. He's got, you know, three of the four belts. Um 
all upside for him. He suddenly pulls off a shot. You know, he is a power puncher and, and, and he always got a puncher's chance. He suddenly ends up with all those belts. Uh, Usyk, I don't really see a great deal of benefit for him if he handily beats Debra, as we everybody would suspect. It doesn't really do him any favours. It doesn't really push him up. It doesn't really give him much credit or kudos. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like it's Usyk's probably had to accept the fight. I, I it know is, it's because it's it's a mandatory. mandatory. Yeah. It's a mandatory, so he's had to accept it. But I personally would be shocked if he was happy about it and he's just seeing this as... I've just got to handle business and get rid of him and carry on and hope that Tyson stops being a pussy or I can get Wilder or, or AJ in a bigger fight going forward. But um, neither of them particularly excite me, to be honest with you. Well, let's just look at them both in terms of that's AJ, White, Usyk and Dubois off the uh, agenda for the next fight. You've got um, Wilder and Ruiz Jr., who are apparently close to having a fight. You've got Zhang and Joyce in the rematch of that fight. So that's another two fighters off the table. Tyson only has, has one opponent left here, doesn't he? He does. And these are the rumours that have been circulating as an exhibition match, which I think is bullshit, but is um, the Predator. Francis Ngannou, it's the only option really left, it would seem at the moment, if he wants to stay active. And I'll be honest with you, who doesn't want to, out of all those that you've just run through, I know Ngannou is a zero and zero boxer, but who does, out of all of the fights we've just talked about, I'd much rather see Tyson Ngannou than either of those other two by mile. I'd rather see Fury Ngannou than Fury Wilder 4, but I'll be honest, I prefer to see Ruiz Jr. versus Fury because I, I still don't think Fury has necessarily been tested against the best. I think the Wilder fight, or the Wilder fights, should I say, the trilogy, I don't rate Wilder still, and I've said this a number of times, I think he's a very good power puncher, but against anyone who has any sort of technical ability, I think he's picked apart, as we've seen with Fury. I think... Obviously, everyone wants to see Usyk Fury. That's not going to happen because Fury wants to out-age him, essentially, and make it to the point where if he does fight him, he'll be too old and he won't have that ability. The old Mayweather tactic. Exactly, exactly that. But I'm not interested. I I don't want to see the world heavyweight champion, which sounds more of a wrestling term, doesn't it? But um, the heavyweight champion of the world fighting someone who has never had a boxing match in his career. That is nonsense. And Don't certainly not an, an exhibition. This is yeah. this exhibition bullshit is for fucking retired people like Mayweather fighting chumps and celebrities and things like that. They're going to exactly. fight, have a fucking fight, 12-round fight, full fucking 12-ounce gloves. Let's fucking see it. You know, let's fucking, you know, let's, let's, let's get it on. Um, I mean, I think Francis would probably be embarrassed, uh, but I think equally he might tag... Tyson a couple of times where Tyson might get a bit cocky and you could see Tyson rocked. Um, I mean, Tyson's got a hell of a chin on him, as we've seen from an ability to get up, as we saw from the Wilder fights. But um, it does seem a little bit ridiculous that he's dodging, um, you know, to fight for the undisputed title when he says he's one of the best ever. But he's more than happy to fight somebody with a zero and zero box pro boxing record. Standard, isn't it? And, and this is why I've never liked Tyson Fury personally. I've always got this aura from him as someone who will take the easier fights. You know, you're looking at a, a fight in Chisora in my last fight, fought White before that. None of these are the fights that people want to see. None of these are big fights. 
I just I've lost interest. I lost interest a number of months ago. I'll watch AJ White too. I'll watch Usyk Dubois because I like watching boxing in general. But I won't. You know, I'd probably watch Engano Fury. I'm lying if I, I say feel I the only but... comment I'd have to say. I feel like you're being a little bit harsh on him in terms of when you say who's he fought. You know, apart from Wilder and Bums. Tell me who he's fought. He did beat Vladimir Klitschko when Klitschko was whatever. How many? How many time? How long had Klitschko ran over that division? That that's apart from that, I would probably agree with you. But I think you have to give credit where credit's due. Klitschko was seen as the man at that point, and he went to Germany into his backyard and beat him. So I think you've got to give him credit for that because that was totally unexpected. But I don't disagree with you after that. It's in 2015 that that happened. And he never had the rematch with him, which the rematch could have gone anywhere. He ducked that rematch. He went and did some drugs instead. Yeah, yeah. I I don't disagree with you. I just thought that was a point personally worth mentioning that apart from, as you say, the Wilders, you know, Tom Schwartz, Otto Whalen, some of these these bums that he has fought, I I don't disagree with you. But I think you've got to give credit where credit's due when he did take out Klitschko. Nobody saw that one coming. So did AJ. AJ, AJ. AJ knocked him out, but people still criticise AJ. Yeah, but that wasn't the same Klitschko. That, that, oh, I mean, there we go. What, that's, how many that's years the point, after that, though? I mean, if you seeing as you seem to be Mr. Stat there, Klitschko fought Fury in 15. When yeah. did AJ fight, fight him? He fought him in 17, so two years later. Okay, all right. I'll take that back. Yeah, I, I, I thought that would have been like 20 or something like that, a lot, like, a lot after his prime, but... Um, yeah, okay, fair enough. That you know, but I think we, we would 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 we disagree or dis would we agree or disagree here? Fury, AJ, Fury wins quite easily. No, I disagree. I don't. I don't rate Fury as a boxer. And it, I've had this discussion with a number of people. I always get battered down for it. You've battered me down before. I don't think he's anywhere near as good as people make out because I think he's got a very padded record until he fights Usyk. Then we'll see. If he goes and beats Usyk, I've always said this to you, I'll change my mind and I'll say you were right all along. Until he fights someone at a level, then not for me. I think he beats AJ quite handily, personally, given AJ lost to, um, you know, who he has lost to in terms of, all right, the Ruiz was, you know, a bit of a freak, uh, you know, and he clearly didn't really prepare properly for that. But I think Fury would beat AJ pretty handily. I've got, I've got to touch on that before we end this. What do you mean based on who he's lost to? Because he's only lost against Ruiz Jr., which, as you've just said, is a complete freak. And the Usyk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the champion of the world at the moment, who Fury's ducking. He's not but... got any big losses on his card. He hasn't got any of the losses on his card. If he was a decent fighter, he wouldn't have lost to Ruiz, would he? Yeah, Ruiz, Ruiz is a fat clown that he should never have lost to. He took him too easy. He didn't train properly, and he lost to Ruiz. So that alone, to me, puts a blemish on his record that he shouldn't have. And if he was as good as you're making out, he would have done what he did to Ruiz in the second fight, in the first fight, and it shouldn't have even been close, should it? It's a last-minute replacement. That was when Ruiz was at his heaviest as well. He wasn't exactly in the slimmer shape that he's in now. Um I, I I think Tyson would win that one pretty easily. But I think um, if Mike Tyson was as good as he said he was, he shouldn't have ever lost to James Douglas. Or to, but, to Danny Williams or to Kevin McBride. Yeah, these are people right at the end of his career. Buster Douglas was the only one that beat him in his prime. Um, but 
And again, this is not being funny. Mike Tyson was out getting gonorrhea, shagging whores, not Prison. training, and still sparking all these people out. I don't hear those rumours about AJ. I hear AJ taking it pretty seriously and still losing to the Mexicans. You've just said that he didn't take it seriously for his Ruiz Jr. fight. I don't think he did take it as seriously as he should have done, but I, 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 don't, I don't think he was living the Mike. He didn't have a fucking tiger, did he? He wasn't playing out on his front lawn with a tiger like Mike Tyson was. How do you know? I don't, but I can guarantee exactly. you he wasn't. He wasn't living exactly. the Mike Tyson lifestyle. Ruiz Jr. is. He's just smoking he, weed. He, he fucking definitely is. is. Yeah, I'll tell you what. See, he, he is living the Mike Tyson lifestyle for sure. The only thing that's missing is a tiger from his uh, from his, his lifestyle. But... um. A good point to end it there. A, a nice heated argument just to end the Tapping Up podcast episode. 47, remember. 47, this one. As always, thank you very much for listening and we'll speak to you next week. <laughs>